Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everybody. One of the things that preachers do when they preach at the beginning of their sermons, in the introduction, is you're supposed to draw everybody's attention and capture everybody's attention. And we often do that by saying things like, I'd like to share with you the number one key to the Christian life, or the most important part of the Christian life. And I hope that I'm not going to necessarily do that, but I do want to say something that I consider to be important for our spiritual life anyway. And that is this, as we come and approach to the things that uh, God does around us, I want you to remember this phrase, anything that helps us enrich and strengthen our trust and confidence in God as he is, is extremely important. Let me read that to you again. Anything that helps us enrich and strengthen our trust and confidence in God as he is, is very important to our spiritual life. Why is that true? Because Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 give us something about God that is quite different, quite special, and aligns us, as it were, to that phrase that I just said. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. It's up there on on the screen. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are... Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are different than ours. God's ways are different than ours. God's thoughts and ways are higher, and I take by implication of that, better than ours. And I think that's important for us as we come to the sermon today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to study your word this morning, and we ask that you give us your grace and your wisdom. Help us to apply, give us thoughts and hearts that are aligned with your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to be there and then switch over to 1 Kings 2. We're in the midst of a series on the mothers of Christ the mothers of Christmas. We're going through this series because it teaches us something specific about God. And I'm going to open up with a theme that I think applies to what we're talking today and actually I think applies to all of this entire series, and it's this. God ensures that his salvation plan will be accomplished just as he promises. God ensures that his salvation plan will be accomplished just as he promises. What we are dealing with in this series is actually something pretty basic, and yet we, know, we might not necessarily think it's important, but from God's perspective, it is. It's the issue of the seed. The seed promise that God gave all the way back in Genesis to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, and then repeated in Genesis 17, and then repeated again in Genesis 22, that the Abrahamic seed would be the one that would bless the world would be the one that would bring blessing to the world. God clarifies that seed promise in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13 and 16, where he gives the promise to David. So the seed promise goes from Abraham and becomes more clear as it focuses in on David, where God promises to David an eternal throne and an eternal king, someone who will sit on David's throne as an individual, as a king, ruling the nation of Israel. So that seed promise that will bless the world is now focused on a king, as it were. We have not read from the passage that all of these mothers that we're discussing uh, comes from. 
but I'd like to read from it this morning. When we think about the genealogy of Christ, we often pass right by it. We simply just assume everybody just understands that. In Matthew chapter 1 and Luke, we often have these, we have these two genealogies, but in Matthew, we have very specific people that are mentioned very interestingly. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. And that's normally how it goes. We've already had Tamar. Now notice as we get to the next verse. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So we have these four women showing up in this passage. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the lady we're going to look at today, Bathsheba. God is ensuring that his salvation is carried out exactly as he promises, but not necessarily in the way that we would assume that it happens. Second Samuel chapter 11, we have the story of Bathsheba and David. In this passage, I would like you to see this thing, that God is faithful to keep that promise of the seed. God is faithful to keep the promise of the seed. And this is despite David's foolishness and rebellion. Despite David's foolishness and rebellion. This passage, 2 Samuel, we don't know for sure who wrote Samuel. Uh, Jewish tradition aligns Samuel with at least the first portion of the two books, First and Second Samuel, and then Nathan and Gad writing the second. But Samuel's, both books, are amazingly written stories. It's just so special to read this and to see how the person narrates these passages. And we can get kind of lost in this. I want us to see the theological truth that's going in this, but I want us to enjoy how this narrator, how this writer writes this story to us. I don't want us to get lost in all of the gory details, but I would like us to see the color that is here as he points out to us all the things that are going on. So, despite David's foolishness and rebellion, God is faithful to keep his promises. What do we see here? Chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, which is what they're supposed to do, which is what in 1 Samuel 8 they requested of God for a king, that he would go out before them in battle. So this is what the king should do. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. That verb right there, that's one of the things I want us to see in this whole passage because this verb is going to be repeated over and over and over again, clearly pointing out that David himself is orchestrating this whole thing. David is behind this whole thing. I don't want us to miss that phrase because the verb is repeated constantly as he moves people around trying to make sure that this situation works out exactly as he wants. The end of verse 1 of chapter 11 is important. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So that is technically a parenthesis that is opened by the author. There's something that is important about that. There is something that is almost devious about that. Since all kings go to battle, since that's what David has done all the time up to this point, since this is the reason why the king is there 
Why is David, it says, stayed at Jerusalem? Uh, the Hebrew verb is sits in Jerusalem. So he's sitting in the castle. Verse 2. Now when evening came, this is after sunset, this is in the dark, this is not in the afternoon. When evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. This is one of the things I want to say right here at the beginning. David is behind all of this. A lot of people have wondered, so how complicit is Bathsheba in this whole thing? She doesn't hardly appear in this. There's hardly any feminine verbs. Hebrew has a nice thing. They're masculine and feminine verbs. There are hardly any feminine verbs in this whole thing. It is constantly David's activity that we're looking at here, even though obviously she is there doing some things. So the woman is very beautiful in appearance. Now at this point, if we were going to look at this passage and simply talk about a passage on sexual immorality, we would be saying, all right, David, you know what you're supposed to do right now. You're supposed to walk away. You're supposed to turn away. You're supposed to go back into the castle. You're supposed to shut the door. Notice what David does after that. All of the verbs that just line up one right after the other. David sent. Remember I said that's a key verb here. He sent. He is orchestrating this whole thing. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is a person, Eliam was one of his mighty men. Uriah is one of his mighty men. This person is married to Uriah. This person is already a married individual. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of my oath. Married to Uriah, Yahweh is my light. David, you should back away. Notice what he does. David sent, third time. He is orchestrating this whole thing. Notice he sends messengers. Why did he send messengers? Why wasn't one enough? If all he was saying is he wants to talk to you about the situation, why is he doing that? Why is he sending plural? Is it an honor situation or is there a force involved in this? The text doesn't say. It allows our imaginations to carry with us. He sends messengers and he took her. Remember that verb too. He takes her. And when she came to him, first time she is active here in this whole passage, she came to him. He lay with her. He slept with her. Now, my translation says this, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. That phrase is actually a, parent, a parenthetical statement. And that is actually pointing back to the washing that she had been doing on the roof. So at that point, this phrase is thrown in there to say she has now sanctified herself. She is now showing, that phrase is now showing that Bathsheba, when she came to David, was not pregnant. Was not pregnant. Now she returns to her house. And thus ends all of what Bathsheba is doing actively here up to this point. The woman conceived and she sent. There's another active thing. So remember the same verb. She's sending. We're orchestrating the situation. She sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Hebrew has a nice way of saying things. They can do things without verbs. But the sense is very strong. Pregnant me. Pregnant I. And now she sits back and says, now what's David going to do about this? Notice what happens. David, what? Sent to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah comes. David asks concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. 
David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Same verb that was used of Bathsheba on the roof. Wash your feet. The implication here is go home and enjoy your marital union with your wife. Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent. Notice again, over and over again, David is orchestrating this whole situation. Sent out after him. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go, into his, go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David, of course, is shocked. You came back from a journey. Why didn't you go and spend time with your wife? Uriah says to David, verse 11, The ark and Israel and Judah, please notice that. We don't have a divided kingdom yet, yet in Uriah's mind, he's separating them for some reason. Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife or sleep with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Uriah shows himself to be quite honorable. Quite honorable. Actually obeying something that is given to us in Scripture. He is being faithful, as it were, to the commitment of a soldier at this point in time. David now goes from something simple, something easy, just inviting him to go home, thinking, I can cover this up, to something on the immoral side. He gets him drunk and sends him home again in hopes that he will follow his desires at that point in time. His mind is not engaged. He's going to go home and sleep with his wife, and then he will be able to say the wife is, excuse me, the child is, Uriah's, but of course that doesn't happen, does it? He goes and sleeps again with his Lord's servant. He did not go down to his house. So David hatches his third plot. He's going from simple to immoral, and now he's going to do something criminal, as it were. Notice what it says. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it. Over and over again. He sent it by the hand of Uriah. Think about that for a minute. He is sending a death letter, his own death, by the hand of a man who he is trusting, who has shown his faithfulness. He's not going to open that letter and read it and realize, oh my goodness, the king is sending me to my death. And Uriah carries the letter to Joab. And what does he ask Joab to do? He asks Joab to put Uriah in a front line where the battle is fiercest and withdraw from him so he will die. Joab, being the nice man that he is, he watches what's going on in the battle. He looks at a place where valiant people are part of the Ammonites and are fighting, and he puts Uriah there with a whole bunch of his servants. And of course, they die. Joab sends, verse 18, and reported to David the events of the war. And he charges his messenger, I want you to make sure when you go and share all this, and David gives a response to you with regard to all this, make sure you remind him, by the way, your servant Uriah is dead. The servant goes. He departs, verse 22. Tells him all of the situation that has gone on. In the end of verse 24, he says this. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead, which is exactly what David had wanted. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, think about this for a minute. Think about the reality of what this verse is saying. This man has now worked to kill an honorable person, one of his mighty men. He has covered it up to this point. He has now seen several of his other servants killed based on his plot. Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. 
The Hebrew phrase is nice. This is, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah, which by the way we constantly hear throughout this, did you notice that? We've only heard her name a couple times. She is constantly called over and over and over again, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. God is constantly bringing that up for us to understand what is happening. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned. When the time of mourning was over, David sent, sent, and brought her to his house, added her to his home, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Now, Let's stop for a minute and just put ourselves in the situation of David. Okay? We're talking about from the incident that occurred, at least until this point, having born a child, we're talking about how many months? Anybody? Nine months. So we're talking about, let's say, a year. If you were in this position, normally, just as natural people, what would be going through your mind? I got away with it. God hasn't done anything. I've covered it up perfectly. No one's questioned anything. You have to wonder what the people of the the palace thought about this. But I've got away with it. Notice the next phrase. But the thing that David had done, notice the emphasis, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The same phrase that David has just used to describe this for the report back to Joab. Don't allow this thing to be evil in your eyes. This thing is evil in my eyes, the Lord says. And he sends Nathan the prophet. Now, put yourself in Nathan the prophet's position. (laughs) He now knows what? He now knows that Uriah was killed. He now knows what he is going to talk about. He's going to confront the king privately and share with the king what the Lord has told him to say and do, knowing full well the king has every power in his hand to do exactly to him what he did to Uriah. Pretty courageous position that Nathan is in, that he is going to have to go and do this thing. You remember the story. I want to point out just a couple things, because there's two verbs and two words here that have to have hit his ears in a special way. The amazing courage that Nathan brings to this. He talks about the poor man and the rich man, the two men in the city. The rich man had great many flocks, plural and multiplied, many. And yet the poor man has, only, has nothing except one small ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It could eat of his bread, drink of his cup, and now notice the next word, lie in his bosom. Same verb that was used about David sleeping with Bathsheba. Lie in his bosom. A traveler came to the rich man, and of course you remember what happens. He was unwilling... I want you to remember that verb. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. and Instead, he takes the poor man's ewe lamb and prepares it for the rich man. David, of course, is angry. Uh, Excuse me, I forgot a phrase. Uh, He would eat of the bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Do you know what the the Hebrew word for daughter daughter is? It's bath. So this ewe lamb was like a bath, like Bathsheba. He is lying in his bosom. He is taking this lamb, all these verbs that have to be rolling in David's mind as he's thinking, wow, what's going on? But he's angry. 
He responds and says this, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, four times, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Remember that word unwilling and compassion? Same Hebrew word. David sees it. He understands it. He knows exactly what's going on in this thing. Notice what Nathan says to David. Again, no verb in the clause. You, the man. Or maybe better, you, that man. That you are now angry about. That man, that's you. And he explains why. For, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little for you, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, a battle, in, a battle imagery. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Please notice, David he doesn't really emphasize the adultery as much as the taking. The taking. This is not yours to take. This was not a relationship that was yours to make. You have stolen Uriah the Hittite's wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companions, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. What you did secretly, I will do this before all Israel and under the sun. David's response could have been, taking the sword and killing him, he did not. This is what makes David unique. This is what makes David special. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord has not taken your sin away. He's removed it. You will not die. But there will still be punishment in your home. David said it. He said it four times. This person deserves to die four times. And there are now going to be four ways in which people are going to die in David's home. The present son of Bathsheba. Amnon is going to die. Absalom is going to die. And then we'll see slightly shortly here, Adonijah is going to die. But God still is carrying out his promise. Because notice at the back of the chapter, chapter 12. Verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son and she named him Solomon. Now please notice, the Lord loved him. There is the phrase that I want you to see. This is God's promise for the seed being fulfilled. This is a covenant phrase. God loves this individual. He calls him, English says Jedidiah. Hebrew would be Yedidya. Loved of Yahweh. Loved of Yahweh. This is the one. This is the child through whom the seed promise will be carried out. God is faithful. Faithful to keep his promises. But Bathsheba's story doesn't end there. God continues to work through that. He's also faithful to protect his promised salvation, to protect the seed promise. In 1 Kings chapter 1, I want you to flip over there real quickly. I'm going to try to 
end this shortly here. First Kings chapter 1. When Adonijah is still around, he still could technically be the king taking over because Amnon has died, Absalom has died, Adonijah is next in line, and he begins a coup attempt. He gathers people around him and declares himself to be king. Nathan finds out about it and goes in and talks to Bathsheba and said, you need to go and talk with the king. You need to go and talk to the king to ensure that what the king has said, already said in First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, First Chronicles, sorry, 22, that Solomon is going to be king. If that doesn't take place, then God's word is not being fulfilled. You have to go in and help. She goes in and speaks with the king. Verse 16, uh, what do you wish, my Lord? You swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me and shall sit on my throne. Now Adonijah is king, and you don't know that. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings, etc. He is now called Abiathar the priest and Joab. They're supporting him. As for you now, my Lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of the Lord my king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my Lord dies, sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders or sinners. David steps in and does what he needs to do to ensure that the promised seed that God himself has shown, he sent word, remember, to David saying, this shall be called Yadidja, beloved of Yahweh. God has indicated to David that it should be Solomon. David now has to obey that, and he does. He protects the seed promise. Unfortunately, Bathsheba almost fails. One step further away as Bathsheba, in her motherly instincts, or whatever reason it was, Adonijah still has not given up the throne. He still thinks he owns the right to the throne. And in chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, he actually comes and speaks to Bathsheba and asks for Abishag the lady who had been called upon to minister to David in his old age. And she says, get Abishag for my wife. And for whatever reason, Bathsheba thinks, okay, I'll do that. She goes in and speaks to King Solomon and says this, uh, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. Solomon answers and says, why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the whole kingdom, for he is my older brother. Even for him, for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zariah. She fails at that point to see through the coup attempt again by Adonijah, and actually almost fails, almost sees that the seed promise goes from, not from Solomon, but to Adonijah. Solomon steps in, Adonijah is killed, the fourth punishment takes place. The fourth punishment. God is faithful, faithful to keep his promises. God is faithful to protect his promises. God himself ensures that his salvation plan will take place for the world, just as he promised. What does this mean for us? Why did God even mention these four women in these genealogies? He really didn't have to. If you read the whole genealogies, it perfectly lines up. It generally always talks about the fathers. Why did he mention them? I would think two things that come to mind. Gentiles can be saved. This salvation that comes through the Messiah, through the King of Israel, is for all people, not just Israel, not just Judah. It's for Gentiles also. Secondly, it's for people who are sinners or have the appearance of sin. God is sending the salvation through Jesus Christ to the world so that all can be saved. 
Not just righteous people, not just good people, not just religious people, not just churchgoers. All can be saved. Secondly, as we said at the very beginning, when we think about learning about who God is, as he is, we can learn to love God's ways and to praise and be thankful to him for how he works out, not only his salvation, but all the things that take place in our life on a daily basis. When you think about Christmas, when you think about what is happening right now at this time, what goes on at the Christmas story, what is happening theologically, God could have chosen any way to reveal himself to the world. Instead, God comes in the form of a baby. He reveals himself completely. John 1, 14 to 18. He reveals himself finally No other revelation needed other than explaining that revelation in Hebrews 1, 1 to 8, 1 to 4, excuse me. He overcomes the devil, the death of Christ, cleansing us from sin, cleansing us from shame and guilt, overcomes the power of the devil, the power granted through fear of death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And Jesus comes to be our faithful and merciful high priest, The one who offers himself as the offering for our our sin, but also helps us in our Christian walk with him. That's what Christmas is about. That's what it's all about. Thinking differently than we would probably ever begin to do. Because you see, if you look at that passage in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, and it talks about God's ways being different than us and higher than us, the whole passage is talking about how God saves We read it at the very beginning for our call to worship. God saves evil people, and he saves evil people through the message of the gospel. So for us today, as we think about all of this, remember this. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this, For all of the promises of God are in Christ, yes, and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and what it teaches us about you, about the salvation plan that you had and how you carried it out so perfectly. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to apply it to our lives, help us to think and rest in the knowledge of who you are, knowing who you are. May that be something that gives us peace, something that gives us joy. When things don't go the way we want, may we recognize that, Lord, you are still a faithful God to your character. And looking back on our salvation story and our salvation plan helps us to recognize that and rest in that truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. So last week we...